0: Well, we are going to jump into our study in Matthew's Gospel. Hopefully by now uh, you've turned to Matthew chapter 5. And as I, I said, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to the part of Matthew that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, because we weren't in Matthew last week, I, I wanted to just kind of give, a, once again, a little bit of a background. But in chapter 5, verse 1, one of the things we've been highlighting, it says this. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, which is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, and he sat down and his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... And the point that we've been making is that oh, as Jesus begins this teaching, he is speaking specifically to his disciples. There will be a much larger crowd that's listening in, but he is speaking specifically to his disciples. And so we traveled through chapter 5, at least the first part, we went through what's called the Beatitudes, and then we made our way all the way to verse 17. And you'll remember in verse 17, Jesus said something that's troubled people for thousands of years, he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And as we talked through that, one of the things that, that we were able to highlight is that in that day there was a great misinterpretation of what the Bible actually said. And so Jesus says, I haven't come to, to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And the way that he's going to fulfill this law is by living it in the way that it was originally intended. And so then we went down to verse 21, and in verse 21 he says, and you have heard that the ancients were told, and he starts to give certain commands that they were familiar with. From verse 21 to the end of the chapter, Jesus would give six commands from the Old Testament that were very commonly, commonly known, very well known. And as he does that, he will say, this is what you've heard. And then he will talk about how it was supposed to be intended and then how a disciple is supposed to live this out. So as his disciples, what we've been talking about in this chapter has become the standard for what it means to be a disciple. So when we went through, again, there were six commands. And the first command dealt with reconciliation and how God's desire is to have people reconciled one to another, and uh, we talked about that. And then the next time, we talked about the next two commands, which dealt with lust, marriage, and dealt with the the relationships. And so we talked about that. But today, uh, we've, we're coming to the last three, and we're going to go all the way through the, the last three as we, we travel through today. And, and again, uh, as I say every week, there's much more here than we could possibly ever, uh, you know, expound on everything in this. So we're just going to give some of the highlights and move on. And, uh, but there's some things in the last three that tend to throw a lot of people. So uh, we're going to be probably a little bit more teachy than, than even, even normal. But what I want you to, to begin with today is we've called this on your outline, the very top disciples and everyday life it's important to understand that what Jesus is going to be talking about in this section that we're going to study today is that Jesus is going to be dealing with just the normal stuff of life. They're not going to be extreme situations, and uh, we'll unpack it as we travel through. So uh, three commands. We're going to jump right in, and uh, this is going to be the easiest command for us out of all of them. Pick it up in verse 33. He says, "Again again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, let, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this anything beyond this is evil. So um, In this, what Jesus does is, and again, this is going to be the easiest one for us to unpack. Jesus takes several Old Testament passages and he summarizes them. And so there in verse 33, he says, You've heard heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. It's actually a couple of verses that he pieces together. So one that he's piecing together, I put there in your outline, comes from Deuteronomy 23. And I'm going to want you to underline something as we travel through. He says, you shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips just as you have voluntarily and then underlined vowed to the Lord, your God, what you've promised. So you know, be careful to, to guard that. And then another one that's kind of in there also, the next verse, he says, you shall, you shall not swear falsely by my name, and underline that, by my name, so as to profane the name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. So when Jesus is talking about this, and he is speaking to his disciples, there's a much larger crowd there, the religious leaders of that day who were always looking for a loophole. We've talked about how they, they always looked for the external obedience, but not really the issues of the heart. So one of the things that they were doing is they, they looked at that, those verses that talks about making a vow, and they had come to the conclusion that the only vows or oaths that you make that invoke the name of the Lord, those are the only ones that are really binding. So, they would then make other oaths, and this probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you and I, but they would make other oaths, and, uh, and they'd swear by other things. And they'd say, you know, if you swear by the temple, or you swear by heaven, or you swear by the earth, it's not really a vow that you've invoked the Lord in, so you don't really have to keep that. And so, it was, it was kind of a loophole. When Jesus says in this passage in verse 30, uh, verse, 35, he says, or verse 34, he says, but I say to make, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, the city of the great king. One of the things that he's doing is he's pointing out that when you make an oath by any of those things, you're still invoking the Lord into that, because heaven is the throne of God. He's still part of that. Uh, the temple's still, you know, the, the, the place where they worship God, the earth is his footstool, This Jerusalem city of the great king. And so Jesus says, you know, you're doing this, and uh, not to the disciples, but you know, the religious leaders were. So Jesus makes the point, and I want you to just go ahead and, and to write this down there in your outline. His point, very simply, is that Jesus' disciples should be people of such integrity and character and truthfulness of heart that whatever they say is absolutely believable and dependable. So that, that's the whole point that, that he's making which uh, we would just expect in our day as, as believers. But in that day, uh, they, they not, you know, the, the religious leadership wasn't acting that way. He's not saying that you can't make a vow or speak under oath. Paul the apostle in the book of Acts will take certain vows and fulfill that. One time, Jesus is speaking under oath. And uh, there in your outline, at the uh, end of his ministry, they arrest him. It says, but Jesus remained silent. So the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And because where Jesus was, uh, you would be speaking, it'd be considered under oath. that you have to tell the truth. And so Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. And it's a, it's a great little story. You might want to look it up later because Jesus, as if he says... You've asked me to speak under oath, so I will answer your question under oath. I am the Christ, and here's a few other things I'd like to say to you while I'm under oath. And uh, the meeting goes downhill from there, but it's, a, it's an interesting story. So um, it, it's, it's also in, important in that to understand that, that um, you know, we want to be honest people. That's the idea, when people have integrity. But it's also important that sometimes in life, you're going to give your word to something. You're going to say, I'm going to do this. But in life, there are times when stuff just happens. It just happens. And you really intended to accomplish or to, you know, to, to fulfill whatever it might be, but stuff happens. And there's going to be times where people will promise you, and they really intend to, but, but life happens, stuff happens. Last year, we were traveling through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church and. And as he was writing, one of the things that he promised at the end of his first letter to to the church was that he was going to come visit them. And so at the beginning of the next letter, what we find is that although he intended to come visit, he wasn't able to get there because just stuff happened. And, uh, it, and so they were then saying, well, you're, how can you call yourself a man of God? You, you, know, you gave your word, you didn't, you didn't you know, come through. And so Paul responds there on your outline. He says, I was so sure of all this that I made plans to visit you first so that you could be blessed twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and again on my way back. And I wanted to get help from you for my trip to Judea. Do you think that I made these plans without really meaning it? And the the point that I want to make is that Paul, with the very best intentions promised, and, uh, and, and his yes was yes and his no was no, but life happened. Stuff happened. And it didn't work out. And so my point in that is that if that happens to Paul the Apostle who hears from the Lord and writes scripture, there's probably going to be a time where somebody's going to tell you something and it doesn't happen and be sure you don't write them off and, and uh, you know, if, if, if stuff happens in your life, life happens. So um, I'm going to move on. So that was the easiest one. Now we get into the stuff that's a little bit harder and we need to unpack just a little bit. So the vows is the easiest part. We all pretty much get that. But then we come to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist. And I want you to underline that word resist, an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Has anybody ever found that a little bit awkward? Verse 40, he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So what's going on on here? Uh, There in verse 38, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When the Old Testament law was given, it was given to the nation of Israel as they came out from being slaves in Egypt. And so in that time, as they went into what's commonly referred to as the wilderness wanderings, God gives Moses his, his law for the people to abide by. So that came from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I, I want to read it, but I want you to underline something. I put it on your outline. It says, the judges, and you want to underline the word judges, must make a thorough investigation. The rest of the people will fear, will hear of this and will be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Now, when you read that, it sounds a little bit harsh, especially to our Western ears. But I had, I had us underline the word judges. And, and uh, to unpack this, here's what we need to know. Right, go ahead and write this down when it says eye for an eye, that was given to the civil government to set up a fair system of justice. To set up a fair system of justice. It was something for the government. It was not something for the people. So again, when this law was given, the nation of Israel had just come out of being enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They go out into the wilderness wanderings. Now in Egypt... The, the nation of Israel, when they were there, they were slaves and so their life had no meaning. So in that context, if you were a slave in that context and you looked at somebody funny you know, you, they, they might kill you, they might cut your head off. And so God wanted to make sure that as his people came out of that environment and they set up a judicial system that they would have a legal system that would be very fair and balanced. <laughs> So the idea would be that if someone was convicted of a crime, the punishment couldn't be too much or too little. And so God gave a very, very powerful metaphor that would balance it out. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You notice it doesn't say eye for head. So if somebody lost an eye, you wouldn't cut off their head because that would be too much. Uh, You wouldn't have them say, I'm sorry, because that would be too little. So they had to think through what was fair and balanced as far as punishment. So again, God gave them a very powerful metaphor for them to think through. And uh, let, let, me, let me give you an example. May, maybe you're like me and I grew up in the church. And so in the church growing up, we, we would have people say something like, now not from the pulpit, but just people in church would say, you know, back there in the Bible... When somebody stole something, they had one punishment. They cut your hand off. You stole again, they cut the other hand off. They did not put up with that. And, uh, you know, they just cut it right off. How many of you have you ever heard anything like that? Good. All right. Well, first thing you need to know is uh, that's not true. It doesn't say that. Another religion does teach that. And uh, you might be hearing about that on the news from time to time. But, but the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches fair and balanced eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So, so if, if uh, you stole something and they cut your hand off, they would say, well, that's a little much. That's a little much. But if you stole something and they said, all right, go tell them you're sorry and you're gonna sit in time out for 15 minutes, they'd say, well, that's not really enough. So it's not really balanced, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So they would have to figure out what does that mean to have a very balanced system? So what did they do? Well, there on your outline, they would say, but well, this would be more balanced. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So the idea of saying, just give it back wouldn't be enough because you'd be tempted to do it again. It wouldn't be enough punishment. Then to say, cut off his hand, well, that's a little bit too much. It wouldn't be fair and balanced. So the idea was to create a fair and balanced legal system. Which is why, when you travel through the Old Testament, Old Testament, you don't find them cutting people's hands off or gouging people's eye out. It's just simply a way of thinking so that it would be fair and balanced. Does that make sense? Say it like you mean it. Yes. Okay, very important. All right, so, now, this system of balance, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, uh, there in your outline, eye for eye was given to the government to guard against personal revenge. Personal revenge. So, you were supposed to have a government that would step in if, if you were harmed in any way. They were the ones who would step in, but it was never to be your job to take your own revenge. As a matter of fact, there on your outline, it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, so the idea is you, you had a government that was to step in, but you personally were not to step in. However, In the time of Jesus, the nation of Israel was not ruling itself. They were under the Roman Empire. And being under the Roman Empire, one of the things that we find is that the the Romans cared that you paid taxes. And so if you didn't pay taxes, they would step in. Uh, But they didn't really care about your squabble with your neighbor. So there were times when you had an issue with a neighbor and there there was nobody to go to. So what took place in that time was that the people began to take what was, supposed, what was originally given to the government, and they were taking that, and they were using it personally. We don't have a government to go through, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So they were saying, so I'm going to exact that from you. So you stick it to me, I'm going to stick it to you. Which is why Jesus says in verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. So, so the idea is they didn't really have somebody to go to so they started taking their own revenge and some were even teaching that you needed to do this to protect yourself. So verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist. And we underline that word resist, an evil person. Now it's important that when Jesus is speaking here, he's talking about the stuff of life. He's not talking about an enemy combatant coming down, coming down the street. He's talking more about that irritating neighbor that lives down the street, and you're not home, and they come over and they steal your avocados, and uh, you know they, they they do that. That's who he's talking about, the irritating neighbor that's always in your business, they're, you know, and the, they've always having been always up and down the street, and they're they you know they they're evil to you. You can't stand them, they can't stand you. Is is kind of the idea? Does anybody have a neighbor like that? So I see that hand in the back. Is there another? For those of you watching online, thousands of hands are going up all over the auditorium. (laughs) We repent and we confess. Now, so here's what we do. So he says, I don't want you to resist that person. Now this is normal stuff. Again, this isn't the enemy combatant coming in. The word resist there on your outline in the original language is is "anthestomai," And it means to set against, to stand against. And, uh, Another way of translating that is if you have a message translation, it just translates it like this. Here's what I propose don't hit back at all. Now, when Jesus says don't resist the evil man, it's very important that we understand, and you want to write this down resist speaks of retaliation, not protection. So, So Jesus is never saying you can't protect yourself, he's saying, I don't want you to retaliate on just the normal stuff of life is the idea. As far as protecting ourselves to the same group of disciples, at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, Jesus is going to say this to them there in your outline. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And then he says, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one to the same group of disciples. The sword that he's talking about there in that verse is what's called a machaira. The Romans had a sword which was called a romphaya, and they would swing it like a baseball bat, hopefully take off an arm or something like that. The word machaira is a shorter sword that you would conceal for personal protection. So the idea, Jesus is saying, as his disciples go out you're going to be going into foreign lands. You're going to be going roads. You might be uh, met by some robbers. In that time, you need to pull out your machaira, your sword, for personal defense. It wouldn't be something that you would retaliate, but it's okay to defend yourself. And uh, we'll, we'll, For you concealed weapons people, that's, that's probably really good news. So, <laughs> But that's the idea. So Jesus isn't talking about not defending yourself. He's talking about not retaliating in the stuff of life. So then next on your outline, and I, I want you to write this down, Jesus is going to give four illustrations, and it's important to understand, from, from everyday life. Every day life. And you have to understand this is from everyday life. And uh, the goal is going to be, hopefully, to, to, uh, to respond in a way that that person can still become a believer later on so that they don't use you as, as the reason why they, they're, they're not going to become a believer. So the first one in verse 39 is the one that we struggle with the most. Verse 39, he says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. And again, that's that irritating neighbor down the street. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn, turn the other to him also. Okay, am I the only person who's ever really struggled with that? Like, what, what does that mean? You know, and and uh, we Growing up in, in church, we had some wacky things that that we were taught. you know I, I was a boxer in high school, and um, there were people in the church who were saying you can 't box because you know that 's not turning the other cheek you know if you're boxing, you 're boxing, all you do is turn the other cheek. It can be a very, very difficult day. So th- <laughs> what do you do with that? Well, what are we talking about in this? Well, back in that in that culture, one of the difficulties that we have is that we 're taking a saying that was very common. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, we're taking it there, we're bringing it 2,000 years in the future to a Western society, and we read that. So what is it talking about? Well, I want you to go ahead and write this down. A slap in the face was just a common reference to insults, insults. So you know, they would say, like we would say, if somebody insulted, they'd say, that was a real slap in the face. We've all said that, haven't we? So when you, when you go to a commentary... And, and uh, we, we, you know, we don't typically read with the culture in mind. For instance, you take the NIV Life Application Commentary and it comes to this verse. It says, the first scene, speaking of this, appears to be an arena where the disciple is insulted publicly. He says, if somebody strikes you on the right cheek. It's not so much the hurt as the insult that is here in mind. And then if you go to Guzik's commentary, and they all pretty much say the same thing. But in Guzik's commentary, it's copied the page. He says when Jesus speaks of a slap on your right cheek, it was culturally understood as a deep insult, not a physical attack. Jesus does not mean that if someone hits across your right side of our head, hits across the right side of our head with a baseball bat that we should allow them to hit the left side. He's not saying that. That's where you say thank you, Jesus. It goes on to say, if a person insults us, that is, slaps you on the right cheek, we want to give them back what they gave to us, plus more. Jesus said we should patiently bear such insults and offenses and not resist an evil person who insults us this way. That is, we don't return return the insult. Here Jesus speaks to personal relationships and not to the proper function of government in, in restraining evil. So it's commonly held that in that society, because uh, it was just a a common phrase that they used. In our society, we have common phrases that might not make a lot of sense to somebody 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. For instance, we were saying, you know, that guy is a real pain in the rear. And uh, the, the truth, what we were, wait, is there another way of saying that? I don't know. I was raised a Baptist. That's how we said it. My wife was raised a Lutheran. I think they said it different. But the thing is, with that saying, every one of us realizes that when you encounter that person, you don't actually experience a pain in that portion of your body. It's a phrase that we all understand that says, you know, that person is just irritating when I'm around them. They had the same phrases in that day. There on your outline, uh, one of the things that... that uh, Paul as he's writing to the Corinthian church. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, they had a real problem with false teachers who were coming into the church. And as they came into the church, they were doing certain things. That, that, and uh, Paul responds by writing to the church. There on your outline, it says, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or, and then he uses the phrase, slaps you in the face. Now, it wasn't that people were going to church and they were being literally slapped in the face. They were being insulted. It was just a very common phrase that people used. Does that make sense? It's hard enough being up here, people. (laughs) All right, so Jesus then becomes the model of how you live this out. When you think of it, how many times was Jesus insulted and he did not resist or respond back? They called him a drunkard and a glutton, an illegitimate child, a blasphemer, a madman, and it went on. You know, but he lived out this principle, the slap in the face, the insult by not firing back is the idea. So he's not talking about physically defending yourself. This is a phrase that refers to, to when people insult you. Hopefully that makes you feel a little bit better, especially the next time somebody comes up and says they can slap you in the face and there's nothing that you can do about it. You say, ah, actually, a technicality here, Wemo. <laughs> in the love of Jesus, in the love of Jesus. Verse 40. Now, again, this is all everyday stuff, everyday stuff. Verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also, Jesus would say. It, it's not a big deal. It, you know, it's a coat. It's a coat, It's a shirt. Uh, everyday stuff. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them two. The, we all know the story about how in that day they're under Roman rule, and so the Romans could come and tap somebody and say, "You have to carry my gear for a mile." So after a mile, then you could set it down and say, "I'm done." Jesus says it's not a big deal. It just, it just go, go with them, and so just go two miles. It's not that big of a deal. Then verse forty-two, he says, "You know, give to him who asks of you." And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So the idea is you can help him out, help him out. It's not that big of a deal. So, so I want you to write this down. The point that Jesus is making here is that in everyday life, the goal is to win the offender to Christ over fighting for my personal rights. And again, Jesus is just using illustrations from the everyday stuff of life which is why it's important to understand what Jesus isn't saying. For instance, Jesus doesn't say, they're breaking into your house at three o'clock in the morning. They're coming to steal your stuff and hurt you. Go ahead and give them the rest of your family. This is, that would not be normal, everyday kind of stuff. That would be very, very different. Uh, he doesn't say, you know, somebody wants to sue you and take your house. Give them your car too. He doesn't say that. A coat and a shirt are very different. Normal day-to-day stuff, taking your house and your car, not so normal. Uh, he goes, you know, they force you to go with one mile, you know, carry it back to Rome. You know, he, he doesn't say that. Just, you know, go a little bit further, but he's not saying go back to Rome is the idea. So you, you have your, your money for your mortgage payment, you're ready to make the payment, and they show up and they say, hey, can you float me alone? Hey, forget your mortgage payment, give them the money. He's not saying that. This is normal, everyday stuff. If you can help them, help them. Go a little bit further. It's just normal, everyday stuff is the illustration. Does that make sense? Okay, hopefully that, that helps you. Uh, then he comes to the next command. And again, the idea is to respond in life so that those who offend you on these, these things, that, you know, they can still become a believer because you haven't confronted them so much that they never come to Jesus is the idea. Then we come to verse 43. Now, verse 43, he says, Now, you've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, for some of you in your Bibles, most of you, it'll say, Love your neighbor. But then when it says, And hate your enemy, it goes back to a different font. If that's the case, tuck that away. Verse 44, But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brothers only, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then we'll pick up verse 48 in a couple of moments. So verse 43 in that section, he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And uh, for some of you, did the font change when it says hate your enemy? Now, there's a reason for that. And the reason is the Bible in the Old Testament, in the law, it said you shall love your neighbor. But nowhere does it say that you shall hate your enemy. So what took place is over time, they began to forget the part they, they, they you know, love your neighbor, but then they started talking about hating your enemy. Uh, well, the Bible actually talks about how you were to respond to your enemy. So in Exodus, which was, again, part of the law with your pen in hand, and it's going to define, when we think of the enemy here, who are we talking about? He says, so if you meet your enemy's ox, and I want you to underline that, your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Underline that. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you, underline that, lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from from leaving it to him. You don't say it's his problem. You shall surely release it with him. So here, when he talks about your enemy, your enemy's ox, that's the guy who lives down the street. That's the guy who's been irritating to you. This is not the enemy of, say, ISIS coming down the street. This is just the people that you live around, common, normal, everyday stuff. So it's not like ISIS is coming down the street and you want to be loving and you see they're having a terrible time with their rocket launcher and you want to represent Jesus so you go let me help you with that. That's not what we're talking about here. Returning the guy's ox is the guy who lives down the street from you. You guys don't get along and that's the enemy that he's talking about. Does that make sense? So it's not the enemy you know, a, a foreign army coming in or anything like that. Now In those days, the religious leaders began to see anybody who was not part of their group as the enemy. So it began by saying, you know, we're Jewish and everybody's not Jewish, we hate them. And then it went further on. You had groups such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they would say, the Pharisee says, we we love all Pharisees, but we hate everybody else. And so Jesus is saying, no, we, we don't just love people in our little group. And uh, which is what was taking place. So verse 44, very interestingly <clears throat> not a major point, but I think it's important for us to just highlight Jesus said, and remember he's speaking to his disciples, he's not speaking to the crowd, he's speaking to his disciples and he says, but I say to you love your enemies. And of course those enemies are pretty much the people who live up and down the street, uh, you know, they don't like you for whatever reason but, but here's what he's affirming here and you want to write this down Jesus affirms that disciples will have enemies. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's going to be somebody out there who does not like you. They don't like Jesus. And if they can hurt you, they will. It's just part of it. Earlier in the same chapter, in verse 11, I put it there in your outline, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. If you're a disciple of Jesus, The reality is not everybody's going to like you. Some people are going to be very offended by you. Well, verse 45, let's see, verse 45. He says, uh, So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, there... Uh, he says, you are sons of your father in heaven and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So here you want to you write this down as he's speaking to his disciples. As disciples, we are to imitate God who loves his enemies by sending rain on the just and the unjust. You know, the thing about God is that that. There are people who are hostile to him. They're hostile to the gospel. They're hostile to what he's doing in the world. It's, it's always been that way. But one of the things that you'll find is that he still sends rain on their land. They, they, they have jobs. They have families. He, it's not like he kills them when they become hostile. I have prayed a few times for God to kill some people that, that uh, I thought needed to go. But he did not. <laughs> Oh, like you haven't. <laughs> you know, there's people and you go, Lord, just one lightning bolt, just one lightning bolt. But he doesn't, he doesn't. And they're hostile to him. And yet he sends rain on their land. They can still grow their crops, you know, sun to rise. And he, he, he doesn't harm them. There comes a day in the end on that day when he's going to look at them and say, you know what, you, you were hostile to me. You, you were mean, you are angry and you attacked everything that I did. But I was good to you. I was good to you. And so at that time, they really have no excuse. He chooses to wait till then. I would do it a little bit sooner in some cases, but that's why he's God and I'm not. So who said amen? (laughs) All right, verse 45 again. He says that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So um, here it's important, verse 45, when he says, you'll be sons of your father who is in heaven. When we become God's children, we have a responsibility to act like God's family. We're sons of his. And so we, like him, are good to people who aren't always good to us. It's not talking about personal defense. It's just talking about those people in our world who are irritated by us. Uh, they can be irritating to us. And so in verse 46, he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so the idea is we all like people who are like us, But God's disciples, Jesus' disciples, loves all people. Well, then you come to verse 48. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus has just gone through six commands. We've taken a couple of weeks to navigate through them. Verse 48, I've put on your outline, and the reason I put it on your outline is some of your translations, they leave out a word that is there in the original language. And it's important to understand what's being said. The word there in your outline is the word therefore. Now, how many of your Bibles in your Bible, verse 48, begins with therefore? Okay. Now, how many of your Bibles does not begin with the word therefore or something like it? Okay. Now, here's here's why this is so important. The word therefore is there in the original language. And uh, the reason that it's there is Jesus says, therefore, which means... Based upon everything that I have said in Chapter Five, this is what you are to do. Based upon everything that I've said, that's why the word "therefore" is so important. He says, "Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." What he is saying in that—you want to write this down—that word "therefore," Chapter Five becomes the disciples' standard. That's what it means to live this out. Now. Um, the, the reality as, we go, as we've gone through chapter five, we're not all going to get it all right all the time. Am I alone in this? It, it, you know, we're we're going to mess up. But that's the standard that we shoot for because that's what it means to be like God. Why is that so important? It's important because maybe you come from a church background that, that, that I come from where we didn't look at chapter five as the standard for what it means to be a follower of Jesus in my background, the way that you knew that you were a follower of Jesus is you had this other list. You didn't smoke, you didn't chew, you didn't drink, you didn't go to movies, you didn't listen to secular music, all of these other things, which have nothing to do with chapter 5 as the standard of of what it means to be a disciple. So Jesus is saying, focus in on this, get this right. If you get this right, that's what it means to be perfect, uh, complete, perfect. as your heavenly father is. So far so good. Yeah. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, I know this was a little bit more teachy today than than other times, but there are some things in here that I really felt needed to be unpacked and hopefully they've they've freed you up or made a little bit more sense. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap this up today, Lord, as as uh, followers of Jesus, we want to be disciples. And we're thankful that Jesus you took these commands and you put them in their proper context and how they were intended to be lived out. Lord, we realize that that in chapter five, we don't always make that standard, but we realize that that's the standard for us as disciples, as we represent you. And our goal is to live our lives so that those around us will still be able, based upon our interactions with them, still be able to come to that relationship with you. And able to enter into your kingdom. Father, I I pray, God, that you keep us until we meet again. Help us to represent you well in all things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.